Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the simply beautific backyard, Magic Bat Allen. We, uh, with a high price spread. We're America's premier true crime podcast, radio broadcast, and generalized social irritant. That's a fact. Murder Most on Labor fact. Day. Yeah. Labor can be murder. And murder can be laborious. In fact, this is a murder mystery that took place in another country. Yes, it may come as a shock to you, but there are more countries in the world than just the United States, Canada, and Mexico. You got some countries I've never heard of. That's why I can't pronounce their names. But let's go back to the year 2000. Remember that year, 2000? Probably not. Yeah, I, I made lots of money. You did? Yeah. Whoa, I wish we would have known you then. Uh, I certainly am glad you did. <laughs> glad I did. Monday, the 4th of September, 2000, at approximately 12.37 p.m., a crime scene was discovered on Bladen Road near the train lines. That's a very important plot point there by the train lines. Crime was two dead bodies. Not that it's a crime to be dead, mind you, but two people were murdered. Police uh, didn't have any idea what the hell had gone on. All they knew was they had two dead bodies by the train lines. Well, they started investigating immediately, and the uh, two victims were identified. They said, well, who are these uh, two dead men who have now died right here, and we don't know why, except they've, they've been murdered. Uh, one of them was uh, Mr. John... Line, Lynn, John Laval Lynn, L-Y-N-N, and Robert Van Allen. Now, they were easily identified. Uh, Wrecker Truck uh, was there, had a, uh, was owned and operated by uh, one fellow. The other guy's wallet was still there. He was dead, but he had been robbed. He's one of the guys that had everything taken away. All the personal belongings on the second guy were all still there. So they figured that the motive was against the guy whose identification everything was missing. And they began interrogating uh, uh, Lavelle's life to find out any links that connected him to someone who may have been pissed off enough to want to kill him. Now, a couple of interesting points here before we get to the meat of the matter on this murder mystery. His Bladen Road, where the bodies were discovered, was close to uh, Brantland County. Now, Brantland County was a very poor area. Household income was about $30,000 a year. Yipes, stripes. Compare this to the median household income within America of 59000 at that time. That was uh, 21 years ago. You see how poor that area really was. Now, major route or route, depending on your pronunciation, that ran through Bramlin County is Highway Route 82, which runs about 232 miles from uh, Chattahoochee River in uh, Georgetown. Through Nahunta. Now, the route also connects Bladen Road to Brantley County, the area in which uh, Lavelle lived. And he ran his business from there. So, police started their investigation. I mean, we had two dead guys. We got no motive. We got no nothing. Let's find out what we can find out. Well, they figured the people there would rightly know this gentleman. It's a small area, uh, rather poverty stricken, not a large population. Everybody 
pretty much knew everybody else. So what did they find out? Well, they talked to everybody in the neighborhood. Family stated that he was a good guy, backbone of the family structure. However, they reported that he was no secret that he had enemies. Now, what kind of enemies can you have in that area? Well, apparently, if you keep your mouth open and your brain engaged, sometimes you may say something that pisses somebody off. And this was a guy who was very stern with his opinions, very opinionated. And uh, for some reason, he thought there was freedom of speech, and he'd come right out and say what he thought. The other point that was uh, highlighted, actually two other points, is that the guy liked to gamble and uh, liked to smoke some pot. So, big deal. All right? Okay. Uh, it was well-known, well-liked. Now, uh, he also had a side business, a kind of a side hustle. He bought and sold second-hand cars, you know, things like a 1954 Buick Special or a, a 65 Skylark, if there's such a thing. And he saw the parts, too. And this is kind of how he kept bread on the table because, as we mentioned, the uh, place got economically depressed. In fact, it was almost economically suicidal. It was so depressed. Well, they did all this research. None of this brought them any closer to finding out who killed these guys or why. And then the DNA that was found at the crime scene didn't match anybody. <laughs> no, does this DNA match any human being living in this area? Nope. Not even the dead guys. So we got random DNA, no motive, means apparently opportunity. Those are the three things you need in a murder. Otherwise, it doesn't count. <laughs> you have to have motive, why you're doing it, means how you're doing it. And a method to the madness. How do you do it? You hit them over there with a brick, you shoot them with a shotgun, you poison them, you put uh, antifreeze in their Gatorade, you make them listen to Wayne Newton's Greatest Hits, Volume 3, over and over and over and over? Possibly. Well, let's go back and check out what the police could discover about the, uh, the morning of the crime itself, see if they could get any insights. So they started looking, right? Who murdered these guys? Now, I said, went to the families and said, okay, let's recreate what happened that morning. Anything unusual. Well, Lavelle's family reported that sometime in the morning, he uh, stopped by and uh, joined them at home. They sat around the kitchen table laughing and scratching and joking around and stuff. And then, around 9.50 in the morning, telephone rang, and Lavelle's daughter answered. She reported that a soft-spoken man was on the other side of the line, speaking softly, asked for uh, her dad. Well, she immediately assumed that the call was a business call and passed the telephone on to her father. Now, once on the phone, his daughter reported that her dad kept repeating the question, where are you? Where are you? Uh, yeah, but where are you? Because she couldn't hear the other end of the conversation. She never did know where the other person was at or at where that other person were, B.A. Someone prowled with a broken-down car, crawling, asking for assistance. And she heard her dad repeat the location of Bladen Road. Now, he was known to never take his truck off-road, would have a good knowledge of the area, knowing that Bladen Road was a dirt track running next to the train lines. So why did he decide to go? It kind of doesn't fit his uh, usual mode of operation. Now, this is where two theories come into view. One, he knew the person on the phone. Or two, he really needed to work. He was willing to risk his truck 
just to get some money. Well, it's now known that Lavelle didn't trust banks. I guess he must be familiar with most of the ones we have here. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that, uh, Mark, you're, you're a, a banking guy and a police guy and a yes, yes, yes. software guy. They keep finding, I don't mean finding like F-I-N-D, I mean like punishing banks by making them pay billions of dollars for doing something wrong. Right. But the billions of dollars they pay are less than how much they made doing something wrong. And they find ways to add fees or charges or uh, whatever to recoup the money. Yeah, to get it so back. the rest of the people who are associated with the bank as customers end up paying for it. That's a not right. Mm. But that's the way it happened moving west. I remember um, ATMs were brand new. Yeah. And we had been advertising for months to get people to use the ATM instead of going to the branch of the teller. Right. And so after a year, and people were starting to use the ATM, we had a big meeting, and they wanted to come up with how we can monetize the ATMs. Mm. You know, and charge the people service for usage. Yes. yes. And I asked, why are we punishing the customers that followed us and agreed to use the ATMs, and now we're going to punish them for that? You're just going to send them right back into the branch. Mm-hmm. Why would someone want to pay a dollar to use the ATM when they're at the branch? <laughs> they probably wouldn't. We convinced them to charge people who used it a lot. You know, six transactions in a week kind of thing. It's, it's ridiculous. Do you mind this ATM fee? And besides, if this is not your bank's ATM, not only are we going to charge you money, but they're going to charge you money. Well, that that's a that was legitimate, even though you're not aware of it. No, I'm um, he, the you know, there there were uh, companies like at the time Starlink or Star. You'd remember on the back of your car there'd be a star mm-hmm. on it. That was, and the institution paid to be a part of the network, so the bank was paying them money, and on top of that, every transaction. Uh, the link got money from the institution. Whoa. So they were just offloading those charges to the customer. Well, how nice. No, but um, when I was working for uh, Home Savings, we decided that was ridiculous, and we spent the money to build our own link. Build our own city. So so then others were paying us for the privilege. That makes sense. You think you'd want to reward... We're loyal customers. We're going to reward you by charging you more money. Right. Well, in this case, then, the uh, home savings was able to eliminate the end network charge completely from the customer because they were getting paid. Anyways. Well, let's get back to our story here. Now that we've uh, basically uh, ripped the banks a new one. Added a service. Oh, I worked for them for 19 years. They were. Were they fun to work with? Uh, Yes, yes. I love the story my brother tells us. There was a lady at, I guess it was First Interstate Bank, was the title. You know, they always change their names. First Interstate Bank of Washington. She'd been embezzling money, just like uh, Richard Pryor, that Superman movie. 
Yes, and he drives up. Yeah, the exorcists here, the exorcists there. And uh, it did a fine job of hiding that in the computer at her desk for years. I mean, she had hidden, hidden, you know, spreadsheets, etc., behind various walls of whatever it was that she could do. So she never went on a vacation because she had to make sure no one could get, you know, into those files. But she figured she had them down pretty well. I mean, you just really have to know what you're doing to go looking for them. So she finally goes on vacation to Hawaii. And by the time she gets off the plane in Hawaii, the feds are there to arrest her. <laughs> the temp worker they brought in sat down, plopped their fingers on the keyboard, and purely by random, unbelievable coincidence or act of the divine, it was the exact combination of keys that opened the hidden files. What's this? The other thing about embezzlers, as you probably know, Mark, because you probably worked with several in your lifetime and maybe didn't even know it, is that if you're embezzling from the city or the county and they find out about it, usually they don't prosecute you. They don't even tell people. Same with uh, banks. They don't want to it'll destroy people's confidence. Correct. So it's a confidence game. <laughs> yeah, there's someone that uh, embezzled about $40,000 from the uh, city of Walla Walla. They just were supposed to pay it back <laughs> over a period of time <laughs> in the next life. Well, getting back uh, to our case here, we figured out that uh, uh, the guy didn't trust banks at all, which got us on that topic. That he took some money out of his wallet, left $490 in his wallet to pay bills later that day. Now, they believe he had a large quantity of cash because he operated a cash-in-hand business, and that would have been common knowledge of his customers. All knew what the guy was like. They knew it was a cash business, and then he didn't put money in the bank. The first witness was a man who was hunting in the large woods surrounding Bladen Road. He reported hearing three to four gunshots, and shortly after that, he discovered the bodies immediately called 911. Further reported that the engine of the truck was still running. The second witness statement came from a father and son who had been uh, riding those all-terrain vehicles, seeing how bad they could bang up their kidneys. And they're driving in that same area. They saw Lavelle's Reco turn onto Bladen Road. A few minutes later, they saw two men out of the wrecker. One was stood next to it. Second man stood next to a white car or a light blue car parked behind the wrecker. Now, they assumed the car had broken down as it was parked as always going to be towed. But they felt something was wrong because as they turned around, they saw the car speed away. The son later claimed that he thought he saw a body next to the railroad track. Well, from the witness statements, the photo was created based on what the police thought one of the suspects may look like. Figured he was a white male, 25 to 35 years old, medium height, 175 to 190 pounds, sandy colored hair, stood up slightly because of his length. You know, kind of like one of those dogs whose ears stick up because his hair was sticking up. The car the witness saw was described as light blue, mid-1980s car, maybe a two-door. In the days following the crime, the police did two things. They searched for suspects nearby who looked like the photo, and they investigated the call which had been made that morning to Lavelle's family home. The call was linked to one of two payphones 
located at this uh, mini mart, 22 uh, minutes away, and located close to Bladen Road. Now, due to the location of the gas station, the police now had a good belief that this was a planned attack. This wasn't random. This was something that was planned, set up. The gas station was used frequently throughout the day. It was also used by many suspects within the area. Now, the reason for this is because it was situated on the main road in and out of Bradley County and would therefore be the local gas station to the many individuals who live there. However, police did notice something rather unusual on the closed-circuit TV from inside the gas station. You're probably now clawing at your radio or your computer saying, oh, please, what was that information? (laughs) You think I'm not going to tell you? This is the payoff here. This is where we get to meet uh, the brilliant and talented uh, Buddy Woodall, age 27. He was Lavelle's nephew. Now, those who knew the two men stated that Buddy was extremely close to his uncle and the kids. At the time of the crime, Buddy was working two separate jobs. First for uh, Asplund, a tree pruning and vegetation management service. Worked mostly for government agencies, typically earning uh, $13 an hour. Second job was at the supermarket, the Walmart. He'd get paid nine bucks an hour. Now, he spent most of his time working to provide for the family. Money earned being spent on paying for bills, keeping roof over the head of his wife and two kids. Now, those who knew Buddy said the family survived and were happy, but they couldn't afford many luxuries, which was true of just about everybody. However, police soon labeled Buddy a top suspect when the closed-circuit TV from the gas station showed him clearly at the time of the telephone call. Buddy first enters the store at 9.47, disappears to the back of the store, comes back a minute later. He walks outside immediately, but returns a few seconds later, examining the queue before heading back out. It's kind of weird. He's going in and out, in and out. What the case is enjoy? He found the two payphones were both outside, out of the shot of the uh, TV camera. They did, however, figure out that when Buddy left the store, he headed right to the same exact location of the payphones. This, therefore, was solid evidence that placed Buddy in the exact area of the payphone at the time the call was made. However, Buddy couldn't be seen on the closed-circuit TV making the call, so that was circumstantial evidence. Now you're saying, as you kick back, light up a call tool, KMPC, and say, does he have an alibi, Pearl? Strange you should mention that. He had an alibi. With this new revelation, the police decided to approach Buddy and ask him a few questions relating to that day and the murders, the payphones, etc. Now, he had an alibi for why he was at the gas station. Could have been he needed gas. He stated that he set off early that morning, headed to Brunswick, 40-mile drive, told the cops he needed to pick up a part for his Jeep. On the way, he used the main route and needed to use the toilet, too, so stopped at the gas station. He entered, and then after using the toilet, he left. Told police that as he went outside, he decided to go back in to buy some cigarettes, but realized that the line had grown, and he didn't want to stand in line just to buy a pack of luggage, so he couldn't be bothered. Got back in his car and drove off. He told police he immediately went back to work, went back home, rather. Now, the police have been working on this double homicide case for about six months. This is the progress they've made, right? 
He had no evidence, no leads. He also had eliminated most of the suspects. However, at around 6.30 p.m. on the 16th of March, year 2000, Buddy arrived home from a full day at work to be greeted by policemen who said they wanted to talk to him. That can be scary when the cops say, we just want to talk to you. Don't move. <laughs> Buddy agreed to go with them, but he was soon arrested. At that point, the arrest of Buddy reached his family and his cousin, Lavelle's daughter, who answered the telephone call that morning. She couldn't believe that Buddy was involved. First of all, the voice on the phone sounded soft-spoken, nothing like Buddy. Uh, and after all, she would have donated her own cousin's voice. Secondly, the police had constantly reinforced that the motive for the murder was financial gain. This again baffled Lavelle's daughter as the claim that Buddy would have known that if he was having financial problems, he could have just spoke to Lavelle and probably would have got a loan for at least, you know, condolences. Because after all, it's family. And family helps family, especially that family was known for its kindness, generosity, not only to family members, but to others as well. Now, Buddy's arrest and interrogation compels us or propels us further into this weird maze of murder. He was interrogated for nine to ten hours before the video device was turned on. Now, why is that? <laughs> you, you know about police interrogations. Mark, you've been all around this law enforcement stuff. <clears throat> yes, I have. And I want to I announce officially for the record that every interrogation I went through, I was innocent. Well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> the ones you didn't go to, were you guilty of those? But definitely. Definitely, I thought definitely. so. So why would they not turn the recorder on? I mean, they've been interrogating this guy for about 10 hours. Um, I can answer that pretty succinctly. Why? Because that's how they operate. But why would they operate that way? Because they, they <clears throat> are managed to get confessions. Oh, so they don't want you to they know. They, they have a particular mechanism and method that they use that is successful in getting a confession. Whether the confession is true or false. And then once they get to the point where the confession comes out, they turn the recorder on and act normally. But that's not right. What does that have to do with anything? There was a, 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 a fabulous police procedural uh, with Andre. Andre Brower was one of the stars. Uh, I think it was Boston. It was, uh, it was in Boston. And there was a particular heinous crime. And they had this young uh, banger. And they were desperate to get a, get a confession. And so he gets up and he says, I'll get you the confession." He goes in, in one of the best scenes ever on television, he gets this kid to confess to the murder. He comes out of the room, goes up to the other two cops and says, there you go, you have a confession from an innocent man. Have a nice day. Hmm. And you know how many of those there are in Los Angeles County per month? <clears throat> Over 1,000 false confessions in L.A. County a month. Um, having spent a significant amount of time around, uh, LAPD, um, I really don't think there's a large percentage of, um, deliberately browbeaten confessions. Uh, they have, uh, a significant amount of trouble with false confessions that are, that are offered, 
directly. Directly. And they have an they have an actual team that uh, vi- uh, that that goes through these confessions to uh, validate. Yeah, some people will confess to anything. Beg your pardon. Some people will confess to crimes they couldn't possibly commit. Yeah, they just want to confess. They get they get a lot of that. Well, anyway, they're interrogating Buddy, right? And uh, the only two questions that they asked him that related to the murders. Number one, Andre, right. were you there? Number two, according to Wikipedia, Andre Keith Brown. Did you shoot and kill anyone? The police then told Buddy that the results showed that he was telling the truth about not shooting anybody, but was being deceitful about saying he was not there. Although Buddy had confessed to being there, he stuck to the story that uh, David asked him for his help, and Buddy had agreed. They then drove to an area in which David handed Buddy a twenty-two uh, Dillinger Derringer. Buddy's words uh, in his evidence tape. David then told Buddy to send two shot to send sound. Excuse me, two shots if anyone came and left him. Now many times he didn't know that David had gone to do this or that. He just stayed where David let him stay. The only time he reported shooting a gun was when a small snake approached him, asked for a cigarette, and drove away. I made that last part up. <laughs> and uh, he shot. He shot at the one shot the snake. Now, he stood by that story for many hours. Uh, this is where the two investigators began to interrogate. Stronger, shall we say. This began <clears throat> with tactics involving moving the tables to get closer to Buddy, placing their hands on his knee, feeling him up, whispering in his ear, complimenting him on his cologne, etc. Now, even with this weirdness going on, that would creep me out. Because, <coughs> you know, if you do that to the cops, they get mad. If you put your hand on the policeman's knee or whisper in his ear, they do not appreciate that. Do also, not touch the police officer. That explains why he smacked me. Yep, I guess so. Those big smacky red lips. <laughs> well, so they get all cozy. They move the furniture around. They start feeling Buddy up, whispering in his ear. Uh, and uh, I guess this is how they start getting him to change his story. They, uh, they agreed all of this about the snake was a story that Buddy created to cover up what he'd seen that day. They argued that Buddy had seen David commit the murders. By this point, Buddy had most likely been awake for about 24 hours, so his mind is not working as good as it should. Now, the concept of an interrogation has recently sparked legal and political controversy in American history. Uh, William Hart, 1981 noted, quote, No law enforcement function has been more visited by controversy, confusion, and court decisions than that of the interrogation of criminal suspects, unquote. And that would be, I think, a very accurate statement. So let's take a little look at the interrogation techniques uh, used uh, by these fellows that are pissing some people off. Uh, the alleged use of the third degree physical force, psychological distress to extract a confession. Uh, 
better than extracting his teeth to get a confession. That's been done, too. Research has been conducted all over the world, but in America, it's been found that those who conduct interrogations with the police, within the police, rather, are highly partisan, strategic, and goal-directed. Therefore, it was concluded that American interrogations are focused on getting the result they want rather than getting facts. <clears throat> Is that your experience, Mark? Uh, again, my experience of the LAPD would be a no. No? No. No, they were more focused on... No, they're, they're, they, um, they're more interested in finding the person who is guilty Not just closing than the clearing case. the case. Yeah. Because uh, um, over time, the LAPD has had so much trouble and paid so much money that, <clears throat> that there's more of a motivation to find the right person than any person. Yeah. That whole thing, we cleared the case. I've earned, in my true crime investigative career of over 20 years, I've earned that a lot. But guy could be, it seems like he's innocent. Well, at least we, we cleared the case. Yeah. Cleared the case means someone went to prison, whether they were guilty or not. And the person who did it, for real, most likely is still out doing it again. When I was, uh, I, when I was uh, chatting with the uh, sergeants that were part of the Rampart investigation, um, uh, assigned to internal affairs, they were really upset. Um, and I asked, well, I mean, I understand how, how distasteful this entire case is. But what is it you're really pissed about? He says, well, how many of these people uh, that they were involved with, the citizens, that now have to be reinvestigated? And I asked them, um, in your career, were you more interested in getting the right person or just clearing the case? And they both took a sigh and said, the right person. And I said, then you shouldn't be mad. You should be mad that these people were wrongfully put in jail. Even though they may be bad individuals themselves, but <clears throat> they're in jail because the bad cops wanted them there. And that you should be glad that you're clearing uh, these cases that, weren't, that were prosecuted incorrectly. Yeah. So my experience with the LAPD is that they're just, they just are just trying to do the job they're given and do the best they can, and it's a horrible, horrible life. Yeah. Also, you got the mix as we've run before, sort of the union being strong and protective of the members. You could have a cop who's just a real piece of crap, <laughs> yes. and then you got these wonderful cops, and they can't do anything about what a jerk he is, or that they know he's doing stuff they can tell internal right. affairs. Or like with the book we did with Ken Urell, Betrayal in Blue, about the corrupt cops. Yeah, it was in easier New York. just to ignore it. Yeah, it was easier to ignore. Just let them go ahead and be corrupt. They didn't want another scandal. So there's a there are <clears throat> uh, one of my favorite um, Vincent Price movies, uh, Conqueror Worm. It's the story oh, of Matthew. Ian Ogilvy is in that. Our friend yes, Ian he Ogilvy. is. Uh, the, uh, he's the uh, young fellow who ends up uh, killing our protagonist, mm -hmm. um, Matthew Hopkins. Uh, he was an aristocrat who figured out how to make a a yit load of money. Yeah. And what he did is he traveled through the England uh, with uh, the pretense that he could find witches and warlocks. Mm. And <clears throat> he invented interrogation techniques that guaranteed he'd get the answer he wanted. Well, like if he weighs more than a duck, he's a witch? No, that was Monty Python. Oh, okay. 
that's a fair cop. Yeah. Uh, well, one, if uh, um, one test is, is drowning. If you drowned and died, you weren't a witch. Well, yeah, but yeah, but you're also dead. But you, yeah, but if you survived, you were a witch. Burning at the stake came at the very end of his career. That was a, the the place he was in didn't have any of the other mechanisms he needed to execute the witch. Uh, <clears throat> one of the one of his favorites was to take uh, a rock and put it in the fire, and then you'd put it in your hand, and if it burnt your hand, you were a witch. Well, of course it's going to burn your hand. But there were a couple of enterprising individuals that figured out what was going on, and they were able to come up with something to put on their hands so that they wouldn't get burned so badly. So he abandoned an oven mitt. No. No, come we're talking the 1600s, late 1600s. They had not been mitts yet. Middle 1600s. Um, There was also, uh, he invented a knife that... Oh, and a spring, and the, the blade retracted into the handle. Oh, like a stunt knife. Yes, but he invented it at the time. And so when he, so if you were a witch and you, you stabbed with the knife, you would only have a, punk, a small wound. You wouldn't be injured severely. Yeah. And so you'd, oh, you're a witch. And <clears throat> you would go into interrogation, and if you had any kind of tangible uh, wealth, you could buy your way out. Uh, or if you happen to be a cute young lady, you could, uh, you could sex your way out. out. Yeah. Right. And that's where Ian, that's when Ian comes in, because he goes and chases him down. Does he have sex with the witches? No, he, he chases Matthew down and kills him. Chases him down and kills him? Yes, because he uh, was not nice to his wife. Why don't you call Ian up and ask him about that? No, no. <laughs> he did mention that when he was on the show yeah, so the, this kind of stuff's been around for a very, very long time. You mean the lack of ethics isn't something new? Yes. Okay, well, getting back to the interrogation. By using these techniques, they build an illusion that the suspect begins to find that their only option, and in their best interest, is to confess, regardless of whether there's anything for them to confess to or not. Now, these tactics and techniques cause the suspect to break and give a false confession. In the hopes that they'll be left alone or be given promises that the interrogator has mentioned, promises normally mentioned before the recording be- begins. There's no record of ever having promised anything. By gaining the confession, shift is taken off how the confession was gathered to the suspect's incriminating statements. This piques the public's and the jury's interest more towards this. In 1931, guy Jerome Hopkins said, quote, our police, with no legal sanction whatsoever, employed duress, threat, bullying, a vast amount of moderate physical abuse, and a certain degree of outright torture, and their inquisitions customarily begin with the demand, if you know what's good for you, you'll confess. It's no <coughs> secret that a confession made by a suspect is one of the most valuable legal and psychosocial evidences of guilt. But can this be said for a statement which has been given under false environments, pressure, etc.? It would turn out in America that this type of thing is, uh, uh, shall we say widespread would be another statement? It's tragic. I think, I don't think, I don't think it is as, as prevalent as you make. 
I'm sure that that there's abuse, but it isn't on a scale where every po- every police officer and every precinct is doing this. Oh, of course not. You're always going to have those few good apples. I mean, I've seen that just, but I've seen some absolutely fantastic police officers who, if they didn't get some sort of big raise and award, certainly deserved one on a daily basis. Dedicated public servants, fantastic at their job, and really there to help, to protect, to serve, make life better for people. And working in the same precinct, under the same death sergeant, is a complete narcissistic ass from hell on a power trip. And those two different kinds of police officers have to coexist and work together more or less. Okay, was, uh, what was the one with um, Richard Gere, bad lieutenant? Oh, uh, that was uh, uh, that wasn't Richard Gere. That was Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Yeah, there's two bad, bad lieutenants. One was Harvey Keitel, which is in New York, and then uh, Nicholas Cage did bad lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. Ah. Similar story. But, uh, hey. Uh. So there have been a number of famous uh, uh, cases where false confessions have been overturned. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us about that, Pearl? Oh, there's been several where false confessions have been overturned. Uh, five African-American males were jailed in Chicago in 91 following the rape and murder of uh, Rest Matthews. Now, they were subject to high-pressure interviews, three of the men giving false confessions Again, where they beat it out and whacked it with phone books or something. They did that in Walla Walla. They just barely be bruised. But Chicago has a bigger <laughs> phone book. Uh, men claim to be coerced through. Uh, thank you. Through, uh, this is so much fun. Uh, through uh, coerced through physical abuse, threats, which is why they gave the statements. Each of the men received at least eighty years in prison. It wasn't until 2011 that a DNA test was run. And they found that the men uh, was not the men that had been arrested. In fact, it was a sex offender named Willie Randolph. The men were exonerated on the 3rd of November, 2011, and received $40 million. Now, maybe if they knew ahead of time they were going to get $40 million, they would have gone through that living hell. But they uh, didn't have that. Now, Juan Rivera was wrongly convicted three times for the rape and murder of 11-year-old Holly Stalker. Now, a semen sample was taken from Holly's body the night of the crime, but guess what? It was never analyzed. He was convicted twice based on a confession which he claimed he was coerced into giving. DNA testing in 2004 ruled, no, he wasn't even there. However, prosecution argued the semen sample came from previous consensual sex with another man. He was convicted a third time. Finally, his conviction was overturned by the appellate court, took uh, the unusual step of barring prosecutors from retrying Rivera, and he was released 20 years later. To relate this to the false confession, Rivera was questioned for many hours over the course of several days before he admitted killing. However, after the confession, he was seen by numerous people beating his head against the wall in his cell. He had a history of mental health problems, and they sent him a nurse to look at him. The nurse stated, Rivera was in an acute psychotic state, was not in touch with the reality of what was going on around him. Well, that's unpleasant. No. Now, the police have their own version of events with a buddy of these uh, strange murders by the train tracks. 
The police led Buddy to believe that he had David, that David had placed a hoax call to Lavelle claiming that they needed help and they were broken down, instructing Lavelle to drive to Bladen Road. The two men then drove Buddy's wife's blue Pontiac 6000 to the place of the murder. When Lavelle and Robert arrived, Robert was shot three times with a 25, a .250 same pistol, shot through the head, one shot through the chest that pierced his heart and his lungs. They argued that Lavelle was then shot through the back of the head. Reports also state he was shot between the eyes before they took Lavelle's wallet and sped away to the crime scene. The reasoning for this was that three tire marks left at the scene matched Buddy's wife's light blue Pontiac 6000. Same color, you know, as described by the witness. Police also had closed-circuit TV proving that Buddy was at the gas station when the call was made to Lavelle, to lure Lavelle to the murder scene. We also knew that pistol used in the murder had been reported missing from Buddy's father's safe and that bullet shells found at the crime scene matched shells found behind Buddy's murder, Buddy's mother's home. Say that five times fast. Now, police could not prove the shells came from the murder weapon, but it all kind of fit together nicely in their presentation. Their involvement in the murder. Now, here's a few concluding statements if we get to the meat of the matter. The photo of mother and son who witnessed two men in the car looked nothing like Buddy. But he had very short hair. But he also has dark brown hair. And the witnesses said the man had sandy-colored, light-colored hair. Therefore, the witnesses were not describing Buddy at all. Problem. Right, right off the bat. Chip Pine, it's kind of a witty name, a former friend of Buddy's later came forward claiming that Buddy said if he had to do someone in, he'd make them come to him in the middle of nowhere. Yes, this follows the same storyline of the murder, but this came to light after local paper for six months. Anyone would know that Bladen Road was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it may not be exactly more than 40% towards being in the middle of nowhere. Now, you could talk about, oh, I'd like to kill so-and-so. Boy, I wish I could kill my boss and how you do it. But come on, in reality, what percentage of people say, oh, I'd like to kill my program director if I have to play... Puff the Magic Dragon one more time. But, um, well, was he from the land of Hanalee? Yeah. We don't know Jackie Paper love that rascal. <laughs> <laughs> what was that other one we had to play a thousand times? Daddy, don't you walk so fast? Okay. Um, why did police uh, not address any other possible suspects? through uh, Lavelle's history of selling pot and gambling. Close to the racetrack, guy had a gambling problem. You know he has spent a lot of time at the racetrack. Now, drug dealing is, can be a very violent line of work, despite the fact that the only drug known to be directly associated with violence is alcohol, which is legal. So figure that one out. Uh, why didn't they suspect maybe one of uh, uh, Lavelle's uh, you know, marijuana customers who Took time out of his busy schedule of falling asleep listening to Led Zeppelin. And I still Floyd. haven't heard a motive for the young fella killing his uncle. No. Well, that's that's irrelevant. Like the creature it's, with a long trunk and the. It's irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Is how was Buddy allowed to be interrogated for nine to ten hours without the presence of an attorney? 
anything said to Bundy before that video camera would be his word against two cops. And we know people are going to be more likely to believe the law enforcement ones instead of the guy being accused of murder. The fact that Buddy had no lawyer shows the procedures were broken. Buddy was left more vulnerable due to being in a room with more people working against him than with him. Now, when he finally confessed to being present at the crime scene, so much of his recollection of events was wrong. First being that the gunman gave it to him, and second was that Buddy said he saw people fishing nearby. Nobody ever came forward to say they were fishing nearby. And if Buddy had seen them, why did any witnesses come forward? He'd already confessed to being there. He had no reason to fabricate his story. He personally put himself there. Why did the police never question this? In relation to the gun that was stolen from Buddy's father's home, why would Buddy use a weapon that he knew was reported to the police as being stolen from his home and linked to his family? Finally, the gas station was used by many individuals every day, even by other suspects. It was never witnessed by anyone using the phones or talking to anybody near the phones. So how could the circumstantial evidence be so easily pinned on him, being guilty? There was literally not one shred of evidence of him ever having used the phone there. Good question. Eddie. You know, I mean, if he used the phone, all they had to do was take the coins out of the phone and look for the fingerprints. Yes, of course. And also check the the mint that published those coins and the date and then find out if they're worth more than a quarter if it's a 25 cent piece. Yeah, but why would the police be doing that unless there was make some money. <laughs> the idea of Buddy being interrogated using high-pressure techniques the kind used to wash your car were brought up at the trial. A specialist in the area was meant to attend the court to explain what a coerced statement is, how it's obtained, but the court ruled he wouldn't be allowed to testify. <laughs> yeah. The judge said, what was say? How did the judge explain that? We're not going to allow a... a uh, yes, uh, the, the fact that, that, that the defendant is innocent is not sufficient right. to overturn the conviction. To be admissible, a confession must be made voluntarily without being induced by the slightest hope of benefit or fear of injury. Promises include a shorter sentence, lesser charges, or no charges at all. As one of the officers reported saying Buddy could go home... If he confessed, confessed against David, suggesting to Buddy he'd not be charged, Buddy's lawyers maintain this was an interrogation, not just a friendly conversation among equals. Judge ruled the video evidence was allowed, as Buddy had never been told he wouldn't be sentenced, just that he'd be able to go home. Now, in court, that's the only evidence that really stood. There was no DNA, no fingerprints found at the crime scene, that were his. Tire marks were Goodyear tires used throughout the whole of America by a large number of people could never be offered as evidence of being Buddy's car. Again, the witnesses had seen a white male. 94% of the uh, Bradley County were white. And yet the description didn't fit him at all. The closed circuit TV stuff that was used could also be used, could not be used in court because it was not scientifically reliable. Overall, every single piece of evidence that the police had 
were circumstantial, and the police had merely tried to make Buddy fit the evidence rather than the evidence fit Buddy. However, with the confession tape, Buddy was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. It's interesting how this case could have gone or would have gone if the jury had been allowed to listen to the words of someone explaining exactly what a false confession is and why some individuals resort to giving a false confession if they're not actually guilty. Also, if the tape had been recorded from the second Buddy entered the room to be questioned, maybe the outcome would have been different. But with no video and no recording up for the first nine hours, what you get is what you get. Something else I found fascinating is that uh, Buddy said that David was the one who committed the crime. But David was exonerated completely after Buddy's sentencing. So if Buddy says David did it, but David didn't, that's another thing that says that the confession wasn't real. Yeah, this, that thing of you get to go home, because it keeps somebody up for days, no sleep. Mm-hmm. All they want to do is they just want to go home and sleep. Okay, I had one guy give a false confession tell me that he said, I figured I'll just tell them what they want to hear that'll stop this aggravation, and I'll clear it up later. You know, I'll tell the judge, oh, no, I was, you know, exhausted, tired, they wouldn't let me sleep. But you don't get that chance. You know, really, you say, well, I just said it to make them stop, you know, hitting me with the telephone book. Now, the, the, um, there was an appeal to uh, the Supreme, I believe it was the state Supreme Court, which denied his petition for uh, a new trial based on prosecutorial misconduct. Mm. He denied it? Yeah, and then we also have, uh, there was a book written about this by John Harris, Anatomy of a Murder Trial, a citizen biopsy of Buddy Woodhull's confession for the Labor Day murders. And there was also a Netflix special done on the case, uh, the confession tapes uh, that you can look up on this case, uh, which talks about all of this stuff and uh, whether or not they think he was innocent or guilty. It's fascinating. Uh, It's troubling. Uh, I always wonder how the, like some people like Hurricane Carter, the fellow who recently was released from prison, been in there over 20 years and for all those 20 years that he was in it in, in there he knew he didn't do it of course
Like with the case of Geronimo Pratt, the prosecutor knew he didn't do it, and the judge knew he didn't do it. But they closed the case. Fascinating, Pearl. Yeah. Um, what is next? Well, I would confess that what's next is probably the most entertaining internet talk program in the history of internet and terrestrial broadcasting. 